Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that does not come with a money back guarantee. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 155. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Well, actually two guests, but one of them is going to speak into the microphone and the other one is going to awkwardly sit between myself and the other guest. We're spaced out very strangely. Thank you, Hutch. Um, Our real guest is someone whose name you hear at the end of every episode. My other half, Mr. Dustin Travis White. Dustin, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Hi. Do you want to tell anyone anything about yourself? I'm being bitten by Hutch. That's... Ow! Okay, we might have to throw Hutch out. Hutch, get it together. He... It's it's a very weird situation that we're in right now. Anyway. I'm Dustin, and I you know do audio stuff for this but you also are a graphic designer you design t-shirts packaging websites you're in a couple bands i do things i guess i'm like your pr person now too (laughs) i guess so we have an update for all of you hutch has hutch left now so things are a little bit better although we miss him of course Anyway, you're probably wondering why Dustin is here with me today. Well, he's actually always here with me when I'm working on Clothes Horse because our offices are next to one another in our house. The walls are very thin. But today he's actually sitting with me at my desk while we record because one of my obsessions this year for Clothes Horse is untangling all of the ways in which we've been turned into consumers. The sad reality, which I explained on a recent episode of The Department, is that for any of us who were children in the late 1970s or later, Products, especially licensed products and commercials and shopping, form the backdrop of our memories. In fact, many of us now find common ground with one another because we share these memories, whether they're Happy Meals or the inherent danger of the playground at McDonald's, specifically (laughs) something Dustin and I have bonded over. Saturday morning cartoons, fruit roll-ups, American Girl dolls, entire communities online and in real life are being built out of this shared nostalgia. So far in my personal quest to understand all the ways in which we have been sold stuff over the years, I've tackled catalogs, Saturday morning cartoons, and the the associated toy hysteria. And today, Dustin and I are talking about something near and dear, or at least super nostalgic to us, infomercials. As kids of the 80s and 90s, these filled the late night and weekend afternoons on television especially on local stations, especially in the kind of places where Dustin and I grew up with small towns and therefore smaller affiliates. One of my earliest infomercial memories, and it's probably kind of my favorite infomercial because of this, was for the Ronco Electric Food Dehydrator. And yes, Electric was a part of the brand name, I guess, as opposed to the non-electric food dehydrator, which would be like what? The sun? Wind? Time? I don't know. I'm looking at Dustin. He's nodding his head. So I was by default the in-house babysitter from about fourth grade on. So when my parents had something else to do on the weekends or were just at work, I would try my hardest to stay up late enough to watch Saturday Night Live. And I almost never made it because obviously I think back about how early we had to get up to go to school. I mean, Dustin, you might have been different, but I got up at like 6 a.m. on school days, you know, to like be a responsible student and get dressed and take care of Jared and go to school. And so I could never actually make it up to watch Saturday Night Live. But sometimes I would wake up during the back half of it and it always felt this like this sort of like sleepy victory to me. Well, one night I woke up assuming that I was watching a very long SNL skit as a man and his extremely enthusiastic female co-host 
went on about turkey jerky, salmon jerky, and fruit leather. And it was so surreal. I, I was convinced it had to be SNL. But about 20 minutes later, I realized that this was not Saturday Night Live, but it was still pretty funny and weird. And instead, I was watching my first infomercial for the Ronco electric food dehydrator. So Dustin, I thought, just watch a little bit of it. Um, it was exactly as I remembered, actually. Just remember, you can order this machine from our California office for $129.95. You promised we wouldn't have to do that. Right. Okay. Right now, it's only $59.92. It comes with a recipe book, Spanish and English instructions. Okay. And you also, if you promise to tell just one friend about it, help us advertise them, get some word-of-mouth advertising, you get the $30 Dialomatic food slicer free. Marvelous. That's $160 value for only $59.92. And you can't put a price on your health. You really, we really shouldn't put a price on our health, should we? Oh, absolutely. Look, you know how expensive eat. apricots are? You buy them in the stores, right. they're super expensive, right, apricots? Right. With our machine, you buy them when they're fresh and on sale. You throw them in the machine, you have inexpensive apricots to last you for the whole season. You do plums into prunes, grapes into raisins. It does your peaches, your pears, your coconut, all your herbs and spices, your pineapple. And you remember the beef jerky? The first pound and a half of beef jerky you make with the machine practically pays for the whole machine. That's true. Don't forget, it's an an electric homemade yogurt maker as well. And the recipe book tells you how to make homemade yogurt. And it's not that tough. Okay, so Justin, are you aware of how expensive dried apricots can be? I I, I am, as you know. I'm a <laughs> dried fruit enthusiast. So have you seen this this infomercial before? I have. Um, I, is that Rompo Peel? It is, it is. And okay. something I wanted to call out that I noticed as I was going back and watching a lot of these infomercials, finding them on YouTube, is that while we might think of the name of the infomercial being the name of the product being sold, like in this case, the Ronco Electric Food Dehydrator, it was actually called Incredible Inventions. Yeah. And a lot of these infomercials I mean, they were really convincing at acting as if they were different shows that just happened to be about one product, this one episode, right? Yeah, no, I remember them framing them like that to where it was like framed specific to like that invention or idea or whatever, you know. And the interesting thing, too, is that so many of these would have the same hosts. Yeah. Which would give them that like shared sort of consistency and or feel like a show because you had seen them with like a different product with the same person so it makes it feel more like the same which then even goes into like the stuff in like the aughts you know with like um all of those the people that were there like doing the all the early made for tv section stuff like the um billy the shamwell guy yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And there's the british guy that was like his buddy um, they seemed like they would be enemies, but there was a TV show that had both of them that made them seem like they were like totally bros. Yeah. I mean, the, the infomercials made celebrities of people. I mean, you immediately were like, isn't that Ron Popeil? And we're going to talk about him more in the second half of this conversation in the next episode, because to me, he is an icon of this era. And he was, he was an inventor, you know, and a marketer and a salesman and, and, you know, pretty good on camera as well. He really had that trustworthy demeanor and the ronco electric food dehydrator episode of 
incredible inventions really hits all the things that we're going to talk about as we talk about sort of what has to appear in an infomercial to make it successful. You know, we've got, here's this amazing product that causes, that solves all these problems for you. But on top of that, it pays for itself. What did he say? You make a pound and a half of beef jerky, you've paid for the whole dehydrator. Uh, It's also, it's not just a food dehydrator. It also makes yogurt, you know, and it makes all of these other foods. It's going to save you so much money. And the co-host hit on like, you can't put a price on your health which is another thing that comes up often in these health and saving money and solving all of these problems. There's a big thing here too, where like a lot of my awareness of this, because especially this, the slightly earlier stuff is um, through weird pop culture references to it. Like I want to say like, there's like a weird owl song that has like a Ron Mobile line or something (laughs) in it that, you know, like I remember from being a kid. Dustin, I have news for you. It's not yeah, just, yeah, it's yeah. a whole song called yeah. Mr. Popeil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a style parody of the B-52s in the vein of Rock Lobster. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I... <laughs> um, which is amazing. I mean, like, once again, like, made celebrities yeah, out of yeah, the people I mean, on them. It's interesting the way that, like, yeah, by framing it as a television show, it does this other thing. And um, and I'm sure that there's a, a reason why of doing that, that somebody figured out that like this was the secret sauce to like make it seem more like a real show instead of just a, a commercial thing by framing it that way. I don't know. Definitely, definitely. And so we're going to be sharing some of the clips that I was able to track down of these infomercials. Some have... I don't know, been digitally created better than others. Dustin's going to do his best to make the sound work. But I I thought it was really important for all of you to hear, to actually hear them and get to experience them a little bit. And I'll also be sharing links to a bunch of YouTube videos in the show notes as well. If you want to go down an infomercial rabbit hole, it's actually, I let, I let YouTube kind of go on its own after playing one infomercial clip today. And I was really enjoying where it was going. So we're going to talk about Ronco, like I said, in the next episode, because Ron Popeil is his own legend in the world of infomercials. But I will say this about the Ronco electric food dehydrator. It made me want one. And I was a child, okay? But I was like, oh my God, I love fruit roll-ups. I love yogurt. My family needs a Ronco electric food dehydrator. Um, If I had seen just a 30-second or a two-minute ad for a food dehydrator, it wouldn't have meant that much to me, but a 30-minute segment that looked and felt just like a regular episode of Sally or Jenny Jones, where someone had the time to break down every single aspect of the product, where regular people just like us called in to say how much the Ronco electric food dehydrator saved their lives. Like the, This is what sold us on it, right? I made fruit leather, banana chips, regular jerky, turkey jerky, fish jerky, yogurt somehow, and it saved people lots of money. It was a product so miraculous that it needed a full 30-minute segment to explain all of its virtues. And guess what? Dustin and I do own an electric food dehydrator now, or as we call it, a food dehydrator. (laughs) We leave off the electric. Uh, It isn't Ronco brand, but I think for me, that planted that seed early on that I am a person who loves dried fruit and other healthy snacks. Someday when I'm an adult, I'm going to get one of these. Yeah. The other thing too about this this format 
of these commercials is that all, there's all now the local morning show stuff, and they almost all have these lifestyle quote unquote segments that look and feel exactly like this. I remember seeing some show, some some dramatic program in which they um somebody was essentially paying for that pay placement like they were paying to have a segment like that on a local morning show under the guise that they would then be able to sell their product and they were paying their way onto that so it's interesting that like that might be sort of what it more morphed into that then does have the guise of actually being programming instead of just like a commercial by like instead of trying to legitimize it as a show by presenting it like that if you go on a quote-unquote legitimate show that's just people paying to get on there it does the same thing but you know it becomes a little more nebulous and it's like you know is this a commercial or not oh trust me we're going to talk about that more because not only is that has that impacted television and radio it also is a big part of a lot of the online media that we consume right now so stay tuned we're coming to that so buying something from television was nothing new by the late 90s. We had, of course, regular old ads for products that you had to go to a store to get, right? But we were also being sold stuff directly via television. Just call the 1-800 number and pay with a credit card or a COD. Do you remember COD? This is collect on delivery. And uh, I, if you're really young, you might not be aware of this, but I do remember my mom ordering a set of albums, probably on cassette, actually, from like Columbia House or Time Life or something. And they came COD, which meant when the postal carrier showed up, I had to give them a check from my mom. The, U the United States Postal Service took the check. And believe it or not, because this sounds crazy to me, that this was a thing. I assumed it had died out a long time ago, but actually... USPS didn't end the practice of COD until 2016. My uh, first record store job, that was how a lot of times we paid for a product because we didn't have like credit with, mm -hmm. with them. So the UPS guy would show up and you would give him a check. It was so, it was so, now that I think about it, like how did that check make its way back to that company? Did they... Like, there's a whole other thing there. Did they just deposit it and then get, like, there's... Like, right, I wonder about that, too. Like, did UPS take a cut? Yeah. Sort of like how PayPal would now. Yeah. I, I have no idea, but COD was a pretty common way of paying for yeah. purchases in the 80s and even early 90s. So, so, as a child, I was obsessed with two particular items for sale uh, whose commercials filled the local programming after school and were actually... We're going to watch both of the commercials, mostly because I think all of you are going to love hearing them. Um, but also, I know I'm going to enjoy watching them. And I know Dustin will, too, because these are two products that he's also a fan of. So the first one we're going to watch is the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown series, which was a series of books. No, they're Time Life, so they seem like they're pretty reputable, right? These are people who, you know, Life Magazine, Time Magazine. So they're they're basically sold as like encyclopedias of unsolved mysteries, I guess. And this is, interestingly enough, at like the peak of Unsolved Mysteries, the show. So I'm sure that there was someone in product development at Time Life who was like, have I got a get-rich plan for us? You know, people are really into these unsolved mysteries. They love UFOs and paranormal experiences. Let's make a series of books that, if I recall, were fairly pricey to sell to them. 
as if it were a volume of encyclopedias where you receive a new volume every month for some exorbitant shipping and handling fee. So we're going to watch the commercial. Uh, It's weirder than I remember it, Dustin. Like, I was like, this is a scary commercial. If I were home alone watching this. How would you explain it? A woman in Wisconsin is doing the dishes when suddenly she's possessed by a terrifying feeling. She's positive that her young daughter has just been in an accident. She quickly makes a desperate phone call, only to learn that her feeling was true. How would you explain this? A dozen people around the world who never met each other describe an encounter with a being from space, and their descriptions of the creature match almost exactly. And how do you explain this? A man's heart stops beating in a hospital, and he sees a blinding light that doesn't frighten him, but fills him with an indescribable feeling of peace. And how can you explain the growing number of people who feel that they've had a brush with something beyond our everyday understanding? Maybe no one can fully explain these things, but they can no longer be ignored. That's why Time Life takes a serious look into this world with a remarkable new series, Mysteries of the Unknown, to provide an objective and comprehensive look at what may lie beyond our ordinary reality. How can you explain this? Four men are drawn to an ancient Anglo-Saxon fort, site of a fierce battle. They enter the shadows of a ring of trees, and without warning, one of them is grabbed by an unseen force, lifted five feet in the air, and suspended for 30 full seconds. There are so many hints of a world more remarkable than we ever imagined, and of abilities that we barely suspect. Mommy, all I could think of was you. I know. Send for your first volume on a free trial basis and see if you can explain these things away. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-548-4600. Examine it for 10 days. Keep it and pay just $12.99 plus shipping and handling. Other books will follow, one about every other month. Keep only the ones you want. Cancel any time. Call 1-800-548-4600. Okay, so... (laughs) How can you explain it? How? How? Uh, th- that commercial holds up, in my opinion. I-, I found it really spooky, and I got kind of excited about those books, which, you know, Dustin, uh, something very special happened when you and I first began dating. We went to the Goodwill bins. What were they? Do you know what I'm talking about? What is that neighborhood? Is that Atwater? Yeah. Okay. So we went to the Goodwill bins there, and we found the entire series of Mysteries of the Unknown. And all of my childhood dreams came true that one day because this was a series of books that I was so obsessed with because I love aliens. I love mysterious things. I'm kind of creeped out by ghosts. Um, actually, I got a little scared when we were watching the commercial and they talked about the boys going out to that site and then one of them like levitating in the air. And that was creepy to me. Um, but I was obsessed with that stuff as a kid. And I aggressively campaigned my grandma constantly like well you want me to read more books right <laughs> the biggest twist at the end is like yeah the book's 12.95 but plus shipping and handling which was always like, if you've ever signed up for columbia house yeah. <laughs> you know like it's it there's no and they keep coming yeah yeah and you keep getting billed for them imagine someone's one of the adults in our lives is like okay yes i'm going to get you this copy of mystic places the number one book in the series and then you know they maybe didn't hear the part where a new one was going to show up approximately every other month well guess what 
They made 33 volumes of this. So if you're getting six per year, they're showing up every other month. Means five years later, that grandparent or parent is still paying for these books. It's so wild how long they went on. And, uh, you know, they obviously had their really big peak time in the 80s. But I also found out that in 1989, Julianne Moore was in a commercial for Mysteries of the Unknown explaining out-of-body experiences. Pretty wild, right? Yeah. Um, This was the one that was just on TV constantly. You know, a, a memory of something like this that goes back a little bit earlier to was the was Sweet Pickles. Can you tell us what Sweet Pickles was? They were these series of children's books. and um, They would come to your house every yeah. month, right? Yeah. So the big thing with this is in the commercial, they show there's a van that you would get to keep all these books in. Oh my gosh, we have the van. But in the commercial, they show the van pulling up and delivering the books. So when you see this as a kid, you don't realize initially because you're a small child that the van isn't coming. It's just going to like the mailman, you know, which, which is, is so pretty exciting. Uh, I'm not saying that, that I'm not trying to, you know, neg on the mailman. I'm just saying that, like, when you see the van in the commercial, you th- and these characters come out of the van, you think that's what's going to happen. Um, now I want to now I want a sweet pickles bus. I, that, that commercial is for whatever weird reason is stuck with me. And the art direction of the books is really cool. It's really cool. Great colors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were selling all kinds of stuff to us via the television, adults and children alike, or kids who were like, you know, eight years old who suddenly want this time life mysteries of the unknown series, which was probably a bit sophisticated for a child based on the content. Okay, so here's another one. Um, I'm going to be really shocked if even one of you has never seen this commercial, because this is another one that not only was on constantly, but like I have the commercial itself the way the songs are broken down even the announcer like his whole script is like ingrained so deeply in my brain i could probably reenact it pretty easily and that is pure moods i know you know this one dustin so let's let's enjoy this one Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience Pure Moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, this multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. To order pure moods, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now. So, Pure Moods came out in 1991. It was followed by Pure Moods 2 in 1992, which I don't think was as successful. And I do remember that, like, it had some really... It had some bangers on there. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, I kind of low-key wanted this tape. Let's be real. I don't have a CD player at this point. Um, And 
at the same time, he didn't because there was a lot of weird, like, what I think of as, like, spa music on it. But what was interesting to me is, one, this commercial was on all the time. It did not have high production values. It was $17.99 plus shipping and handling for it, which is almost $40 for a single CD or tape. It's wild to me because I know they sold so many. I mean, allegedly it was multi-platinum. So there's an episode of Decoder Ring that uh, revolves around the way that uh, Yanni and then John Tesh used the PBS fundraiser to like have their careers take off. And it ties into this time period where like those two in particular, they filmed a giant special um, because of the way that the three tenors had done the PBS fundraiser and it was like crazy ratings and worked really well. So Yanni did it. And then John Tesh actually funded his own because at the time his career hadn't quite taken, like Yanni already had been somewhat successful for that, but was still kind of, you know, in like a weird corner of the market. So I think that the pure mood stuff and especially them advertising it on TV is a direct result of that because since they had seen like, oh, if you put this in front of people and they hear it and they see it, they're into it. So that had already happened. And so I think that that's why they in particular tried to sell that that way so hard. I mean, I see Pure Moods and Mysteries of the Unknown and later the X-Files and all kinds of programming of that era across all of pop culture, all being tied together and really being about trying to lean into, you know, the mysteries of the unknown, like, you know, spiritualism and spirituality and mysticism and you know, going as far as aliens, right? This idea that like, I I also feel like some of this kind of comes from boomers getting older at that point, but still being young and them wanting to like solve a lot of mysteries that have been told to them as fact that maybe weren't, you know, like think about JFK, the film. And I mean, really anything Oliver Stone did at that point and many other films and books and just programming that were about no longer taking these easy explanations that had been handed by the previous generations and, and actually saying like, here's, here's the real truth about it, right? We're going to find the real truth. And honestly, even when it came to infomercials, infomercials were always about teaching you like, oh, this is a better way to do this. What you've been sold for so long by everyone else is like the wrong answer. And here we're going to show you the new thing. And it's as simple as if you make a, a pound and a half of beef jerky, this pays for itself, right? It's like, that's, these are the facts that like, the mainstream medium's not going to tell you, right? Well, also, too, you know, like, all of the New Age stuff had been bubbling under for, throughout the all of the 80s, like, it had fun, you know, as, you know, like you're saying, like, boomers aging and that stuff becoming more just entrenched in a way helped it really to then, you know, for everything from Mysteries of the Unknown to Pure Moods by all of that, by it sort of having a more just mainstream market share essentially yeah yeah totally totally but there were a lot of other things that were being sold to us too on television right there was the legendary freedom rock commercial i mean that's my favorite and that one was for boomers right that was music of the 60s and 70s yeah yeah yeah. um there were various do-it-yourself book series you know at this point boomers are buying houses right and like wanting to once again like we're not going to do what 
people say we're supposed to do. We're going to do it ourselves. Um, and then they're also, and I think this was probably for like an older customer, maybe the parents of the boomers. There were all those like Franklin mint dolls and coins and collectibles. Like I remember there was a Princess Diana doll that was like constantly being advertised or weird thimbles that were created by global artisans, like things like that, you know, and I would, I as a kid would watch these commercials. They felt like a legitimate fact to me, um, which is, you know, we know that children struggle to differentiate between uh, fiction and fact on television. And I mean, so do a lot of adults, right? Well, that's why you think the Sweet Pickles bus is coming to your front door. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The 80s also saw the rise of home shopping networks. You know, we're going to talk about that in a future episode of Close Horse because that deserves its own series. But we're talking QVC, home shopping network. Those also came on the scene in the late 80s. But today, like I said, we're here to talk about infomercials. And Wikipedia defines an infomercial as a form of television commercial that resembles regular TV programming, yet is intended to promote or sell a product, service, or idea. It generally includes a toll-free number or website, obviously website being a later innovation there, but there was always the same old screen with the 1-800 number, call now kind of situation. It's also called paid programming. And if you see an infomercial on television now, which you may as you might, when we are traveling in the Rialta RRV, we have like an antenna to get local television. And I would say if we try to watch television in the daytime in there, a big chunk of it is paid programming. Infomercials for anything from arthritis cures to special cushions for your chair to any number of supplements, so many vitamins, right? Security, knives, you name it. Um, So episodes of infomercials tend to fill an entire 30 or 60 minute block in the off-peak broadcasting hours. Now, usually that's between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m., but some stations, in fact, many stations now also air them on weekend afternoons or any other window with low viewership. Stations actually make a pretty decent amount of almost passive revenue by airing these infomercials. And research has indicated that these infomercials are most effective, meaning driving the most sales when there isn't much else to watch on television because you're more likely to watch the whole thing, to get invested in it, to make the purchase. Well, I mean, and people forget, you know, uh, that there was a time when the networks like the major networks just went off the air yeah and you would hear the weird like Uh, or they would play taps yeah Yeah. and then in the morning they would come back on and they would have this very patriotic sort of slideshow more often than not like if you would get up really early to start watching cartoons and got up too early they would nothing would be on yet and you would then see the like patriotic review in the morning of like welcome to another day of broadcasting. And then they would have this sort of slideshow of like flags and eagles, and then it would start. And, you know, but I mean, that that all goes away in the mid 80s as cable kind of forces the uh, networks to like air more all around. And that's why then they can fill it up with this stuff. Yeah, because not only do they not pay for this stuff, they don't pay to make it. They don't even pay to use it. They get paid to play it. So it's like, why not just be making money overnight, right? So you can see how these can be pretty appealing. And we're going to talk about it because in the early days, 
networks were kind of like, it was like a little embarrassing to play infomercials, but we'll go through all of that. So infomercials picked up steam through the late 80s. And by 1992, it's just like funny. I started out just being like, I want to know about the rise of infomercials when they reached critical mass. Like, were they always around? That kind of stuff. As, As soon as I began my research, every important article was from 1992 because this was a year that everybody was like, what the heck is going on? There's so many infomercials on all the time. Um, And they were definitely on everybody's mind or at least the minds of people who write think pieces for newspapers and magazines. So I found a lot. And to be fair, infomercials weren't just a little thing. At that point in 1991, they generated more than $750 million in product sales. I mean, that is not a tiny little drop in the bucket. And in today's money, that would be about one and a half billion dollars. Like it's not, it was not a tiny industry. A group called the National Infomercial Marketing Association formed in 1990, boasting more than 200 members by 1992. And infomercials had their own awards ceremony called the Play Awards. Play is an acronym for Program Length Advertisements of the Year. Sadly, I couldn't find any videos or lists of winners, and I don't know how long it actually went on. That is a shame. That That is a shame. I know. I know. There needs to be a real archive. Of that, somebody needs to uncover that. I, because I, I, I can't even imagine how weird. <laughs> I know, I know. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. 
Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Fagavan Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. So 
So I did find this list of the most broadcasted infomercials during the week ending September 26, 1992. And there's some bangers on here. Um, number one did not surprise me. It was the Psychic Friends Network. And that was hosted by Dionne Warwick. This is where Miss Cleo began. If you've seen the Miss Cleo documentary on HBO, I, I highly recommend it. Um, these were 1-900 number psychics. Um, if you're unfamiliar with 1-900 numbers or you've never seen Reality Bites, uh, you would call a 1-900 number and you would pay by the minute on your phone bill, which was, would result in people getting you know thousands of dollars worth of charges on their phone bills. Uh, those minutes can add up really fast. Uh, number two was Tony Robbins, Personal Power. Uh, Martin Sheen was a big guest on oh, there. Wow. Yeah. And this was like self-help, entrepreneur. This Tony Robbins is still around. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, next was the Big Green, the Big Green Clean Machine. It was a vacuum cleaner. And if it sounds wild that people would watch a 30-minute program about a vacuum cleaner, just keep in mind I did... Many times watch a 30-minute program about a food dehydrator. Uh, number four was one that I felt like you would love, Dustin. It was a video professor, computer education videotapes, as in VHS, learning how to use things like windows and printers. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'd, I'd watch that. Yeah. Uh, number five was called Aqua Essentials. The host was Cher, which is like A-list to me. And she was selling hair care products. She was paid one million dollars and a share of sales for her appearance so this wasn't her product but she was there to be the face of it number six was stair climber plus it was a stair stepping exercise equipment machine thing which step and stair master things were huge at this point uh number seven dustin i tried so hard to find you a good clip of this it was called the secret of creating your future um it was hosted by james brolin and linda gray linda gray was sue ellen yeah, on dallas dustin's a big fan and james brolin is in one of the best like exploitation films of the late 70s which is um said night of the juggler i think you're right yeah yeah well in this case uh they were both selling self-help books that's uh, i i yeah i would love to i am so sad i couldn't find this one anywhere um number eight was the kathy smith fat burning system a weight loss program i'm gonna tell you diet culture is a big part of the infomercial world of that era and of now like it's all supplements and diet things and exercise machines number nine was victoria jackson makeup which were beauty products i was telling dustin about this a little bit in the car yesterday we're actually going to talk about victoria jackson who was making all the money ever off of her makeup and the next episode but the gimmick here was that it was like makeup for older ladies like women who are in their 30s or older so that they don't look like i don't know some sort of like painted tart or something that's that's the implication like you can't wear the kind of makeup that young women wear and uh, it had it was like filmed in a very soothing taupe and beige living room and it was just conversations between meredith baxter bernie and uh Ally McGraw and Lisa Hartman, and they were all wearing smart pantsuits and talking about cosmetics. Anyway, we're going to talk about that one in the next episode. I trust that every Meredith Baxter Bernie has yeah, to say. Yeah, me too, me too. She's the voice of reason. And number 10 was the Ronco food dehydrator, which we know was Kitchenware. Um, those were the most broadcasted infomercials during that week. Um, and kind of 
that entire year or even several years around that. You know, I was there were a few that I was really shocked to not see on here, but I think they came a little bit later or they just maybe had already peaked. One was the Topsy Tail, which was like a weird plastic loop that you could put into your hair and it turned it into very sophisticated the hairstyles. I don't know. <laughs> uh, thigh Master which was Suzanne Summers of Three's Company. Um, that thing was only 1995. It's kind of iconic looking. It's this like weird bendy thing with like a red ball that you put between your knees. Dustin, did you ever know anyone? Did Judy have one by any chance? I don't believe so, but I, they were so like, that was one of those that just became like the point, like a joke. Immediately. It totally did. And you I, for years would see them at thrift stores. Oh my, it's so true. Well, I'll tell you, I was shocked to learn that they, the company earned more than $100 million in revenue since it launched. Like, they, people still buy thigh masters, probably not as much as they did back then, but it was big business. Uh, and it's true. There would be times where you would go to like a Goodwill and like say 1999, and there would be like a nest of them. They were all tangled up on each other. Um, Sweating to the Oldies is another one that I remember very well. Richard Simmons generated more than $200 million in sales since the infomercial aired in the late 80s. Um, and that was Richard Simmons, you know, exercising with a whole audience of people uh, to old old music, um, like 50s and 60s music. Um and then there were a few other ones, Bedazzler, which I see thrifting sometimes, Harigami, which was an even more sophisticated version of Topsydale, blow pens, which were advertised to kids. I, I wanted blow pens. Yeah, they me too. Cool. Me too. Because like the, the infomercials weren't just limited to adults. Like, yes, there were late night ones, like a lot of these adult ones. But the, like I said, they were on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. Blow pens was one. Hooked on phonics. And another one. Another one that quickly became like a punchline. Because there was a kid in it who said, hooked on phonics worked for me. And it was like, all of a sudden it was like on In Living Color and Saturday Night Live and stuff. Floby, which I, do you ever know anyone who had this i feel like somebody that i knew had one years later sort of as like almost as a joke like they found one at a thrift store or something and like we're giving floby haircuts on a porch it's like an attachment that you put on your vacuum that gives haircuts and then like you know what's the what's the reason to buy that well because it sucks up all the hair and so it's not a mess so it saves you the time and money of going to a hair salon and then cleans it up for you uh not sure it gives great haircuts. I think it can give you layers, no. though. It, I think it was intended purely for, like, men's short hair, really. Like, they may have shown on the commercial women, but, like, that was really intended for, like, not not bowl cut, per se, but, like, you know, like a short men's haircut that just didn't matter. You know, like, get this for your child, basically. I feel like so you don't have to cut your child. Get your hair... Get your child's hair cut. Yeah, totally. And speaking of hair, uh, there was Hair Club for Men. Those were always on. And I feel like the iconic tagline there was like, I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. Is that is that right? Yeah. And it was like, I think, was it for hair transplants? Basically, I think it was hair plugs or something along those lines. It was a little gray what it actually. But it was for men and it was yeah. a club. It looked expensive. Um, okay, so those were some of like some other big ones. The point is that we can list so many here. Um, can you think of anything I'm forgetting? None of the the the, the big ones come to mind. But there was, I mean, there was Zoo Books. Yeah, was another one. There were like a, and a lot of other related products like that. There was like the there was one that was like VHS tapes of animals for kids. There was a mm -hmm. lot of stuff like that, and. Uh, 
the, the thing that I really remember about a few years later than, than this, like whenever I was in high school, our big thing within a certain group of friends was like these really dumb prank calling these numbers and asking weird questions about the products. <laughs> like, cause you know, like you'd be hanging out, it's midnight, this is what's on. Right. Um, you know, like we'd all end up back at somebody's house after whatever, like, you know, all ages punk show stuff. And like, we're there hanging out and you'd see these. And in particular, one friend was exceptionally good, gifted at this of just like, it was this idea of like, not of having a prank phone call, but instead of being like some kind of jerky boys insulting thing was just to sort of like, see how long you could get this person to keep asking, answering questions. <laughs> and like, so that's why so many, I'm trying to remember other ones, but I mean, cause we, called half of these and would ask like just whatever weird questions we would just sit there with the tv on and flip through and try to find them well i mean the fact that like we all have so many memories of these like that once again going back to all the sort of i don't know nostalgic unifiers these things that framed the background of our childhoods and early young adult years that we can all we can all share and reminisce about together uh it really speaks to a time when we talk about infomercials that they really must have been on on television all the time, right? So how did we reach a point specifically in this like 1990, 91, 92 era when the evening hours of television were filled with long-form commercials? Well, you just travel back to the early days of television. And actually back then, many television shows were created by sponsors, advertisers, specifically to sell their product. In fact, this is actually how soap operas began, as they were often often sponsored by soap makers like Procter & Gamble. In the era of radio, that company, Procter & Gamble, started its own daytime dramas to promote Oxidol soap powder. And this was so good for them that by the 1960s, Procter & Gamble had produced 20 soap operas, some of which are on even today. Some of them are not, right? Guiding Light, yes. Well, actually, I don't know how many of these soap operas are still on, but they carried well into the centuries, let's just say, because there's been a shakeup on daytime television. So Guiding Light, The Young and the Restless, Search for Tomorrow, which I kind of remember being on when I was a very, very small. I just included this one on the list because I thought it was intriguing. A soap opera called Texas. Would love to see that. Uh, and As the World Turns, which is another long-running one. Yeah. The thing about this is that the company had complete creative control over the show, which does raise ethical implications, right? The thing is, it wasn't just soap operas that were being at least heavily influenced by brands, if not completely created and run by brands. Lots of other companies were doing very similar things, having the main cast pitch products at the beginning of each episode. So like on the Andy Griffith show, it would start with, the characters of the show pitching post-serial and touching on it again during breaks and at the end. Ozzie and Harriet did the same thing with Coca-Cola. Bonanza, which is a show I remember watching in reruns with my great-grandpa. He loved that show. Apparently, that was in- initially sponsored by Chevrolet. The Flintstones were sponsored by Welch's Grape Juice, and I have actually found like screen caps of the characters drinking and talking about Welch's grape juice. Leave it to Beaver was sponsored by Purina. Um, And what has to be the funniest, or at least, I don't know, cheekiest collaboration, in my opinion, was the Twilight Zone being sponsored by Senka, which if I recall is decaf coffee, 
right? Like, I believe so, yeah, like yeah. decaf instant coffee. Uh, so that to me is like, yeah, if your nerves are all shaken up by the toilet zone, you probably shouldn't have more caffeine. The Beverly Hillbillies were sponsored by Kellogg's. This one, this one was great because I also saw screen caps of uh, Lucy and Desi of I Love Lucy uh, doing cigarette promotions for their show because they were sponsored by Philip Morris. So they were hawking cigarettes. And even the Jetsons were sponsored by Colgate. So this was like a pretty common thing. And I would have to say that as a child, it would have been a little disorienting to see uh, the Flintstones drinking Welch's grape juice. One, because it's gross. But two, because it might make me feel like I should drink that. Well, I mean, all of like old TV, that's how it just was. Because it goes back to, yeah, like the radio days and like that you would have a sponsor like that i mean like i it, it seems wild now but that's just like how the stuff was subsidized it's totally true um and these weren't infomercials but they definitely blurred the line between entertainment and advertising the f- infomercial as we know it was actually invented by vitamix the blender company in 1949 and it starred vitamix founder william grover barnard known as papa barnard Now, Papa Barnard was a consummate salesman. He started the Barnard Sales Company back in 1921, where he was selling can openers and other kitchen utensils. And these were like top of the line innovation at that point. His big guiding principle was that value should always exceed the price. We're going to talk about how that trick continues on in today's infomercial, but it was a big part of his selling, right? The value of the things he sold wasn't just their day-to-day use, it was health. Can openers gave customers access to fruit and vegetables when they were out of season. Vegetable graters, another thing he sold, allowed people with dental issues to still consume produce. The blender, which came later, gave all kinds of people easy ways to eat more healthfully. Barnard traveled from trade show to expo for years and years, demonstrating the items he sold and explaining all of the ways in which their value exceeded the price. The demonstration element was key. It gave him time with the customers. It gave them the customers a chance to see the product in action and an opportunity to envision the ways in which these items would fit into their day-to-day lives, ostensibly, you know, improving their health and happiness and saving them money. And you know what? It worked. So Vitamix's inaugural infomercial, which I'm not going to ask any of you to watch, but I will link to in the show notes because it's pretty long. And it's, you know, for if you've been raised on MTV, if you're part of that generation, it's really hard to watch because it's just one shot the whole time. Um, it's called Home Miracles for 1950. So this is where we get started. I mean, it's like we're laying the groundwork yeah. for infomercials here. This is an infomercial for Vitamix. The entire 30 minutes is only about Vitamix, but it's under the guise of it being a show called Home Miracles for 1950. And it was broadcast live from a Cleveland television studio. It was allegedly created by the Natural Foods Institute of Olmsted Falls, Ohio, which I could not find anywhere. I can't imagine that that, I mean, it's like... Yeah, Olmstead is just a rat, like party around Cleveland. So, like, I can't imagine yeah. that, like that this is a real thing. But so here's where we get. I mean, this yeah. is like an integral part of the infomercial DNA. Let's create a fake show. Yeah. Let's create a fake show sponsored by a fake organization or company, right? Papa Bernard built himself in the intro as an author, 
lecturer and food specialist. I mean, there's a whole facade being created here. The infomercial itself was 30 minutes long with Papa Bernard showing all the things one could make with a blender. But he also focused on the value of the blender. It saved you money. For example, and this is just like, oh, seeing Ron Popeil do this with like, oh, if you just make a pound and a half of jerky, you've paid for the whole thing. It's like, this is where the guidelines for all infomercials were created because Papa Bernard says, if you make butter from the cream of your milk each week using the blender, you pay for the blender in just a few months. It's so comically of its time that it's like, from using the cream from your milk. I know. But I mean, it's it's interesting here, you know, like this is where it starts. Like yeah. this is like, oh, okay, this is this is how you, it pays for itself. It's always in so many of these infomercials. It's all about how the product pays for itself when you just do X, Y, Z. Um, but also there were less dishes to wash, ease of use and cleaning. And most importantly, the thing that you can't put a price on, health. So how, who do you to argue the price of the Vitamix when it's going to have all this impact on your health, even if you don't make all that butter every week. Um, he actually ends the entire infomercial with just like, this is so classic too. This is so iconic. You cannot afford to go another day without a Vitamix machine. I mean, this is where it's like everybody who made an infomercial after this copied this format. I mean, he seems to really be laying all the groundwork here. I mean, and, you know, like, the Vitamix still to this day you think of as, like, the, like... Gold standard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Whenever I worked, you know, like, making juice, that's what I was surrounded by. Yeah, yeah. Um, There was another classic move of infomercials in this this one, which is act now and get the special deal slash add-on. In this case, you would get a stainless steel uh, pitcher as well as the glass one, I believe. this whole, like, if you do it now, then you'll get this, or you'll get this special deal. It's called the call to action, the CTA. It's designed to create a sense of urgency within the customer, meaning don't sleep on this. Give us your money now. I believe with the Ronco food electric dehydrator, you would get a free, like, something that, what was it called? It was called, like, the dial of vegetable or something. I don't know. It, yeah. it, it sliced your vegetables for you before you dehyd- dehydrated them. Well, I mean, and the, the funny thing, too, is on so many of these, it has the, like, the first 10 callers, but it's, like... It's not, because it's not live. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah yeah. 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 You're, like, how do they know that, like, this is airing, like, is th- this is not airing on every station at once across the U.S.? You know? Right, you know? right. Well, the original Vitamix infomercial was, which we'll talk about, too, but uh, I, I did, I captured some screenshots for you, Justin, because one, I wanted you to see how the kitchen where they filmed this looked exactly like our kitchen at the house we lived in in Burdenham. And it made me really, really homesick. And now I'm like 100% ready to move back after seeing the shot of this kitchen. And then secondly, at one point he pulls out this huge prop. It's called the wheel of life. It says, follow the wheel of life to keep well. You can diet and still enjoy your meals. You are what you eat. And it's health and happiness depend on your food. I don't know. It's all these things. It It's like if you spin to the thing you're going to eat it tells you the other thing you should eat to counteract it it does not seem to be based in science what and what year this is like in the this is 1949 so no one so like when you look at this image all of this text around the outside 
no one was possibly going to see this on their television. No. no, I'm sure this was something that he had for like the live things that he was doing. And then you could see it and he tried to translate it on the TV. But like in 1949, no one had a TV. Like, like, like yeah, like it just it wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to read it because like it's just, you know, but I'm sure this is something from like his live, you know, totally. selling thing because this 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 is a giant visual aid and it goes to, um, you know, with the later infomercials, the big thing that they would always talk about um, was sort of the wow moment because um, there there was and I mentioned this the other day that there was a uh, brief reality show that of Billy and the British guy where they were every episode was them meeting with people that had ideas that were possibly ready for some sort of infomercial kind of pitch or just like basically an as seen on TV thing, which is like, there's a, you know, that slight little line in the sand there. But, um, and the big thing that they would always talk about was like that wow moment. You know, it's like in some of the current things that, that fill this need, like that, what is it? Flex tape, where they've got the water coming out and the guy just goes and smacks the tape on it. And it has that like, Oh wow. And so I think that this is like, it's something like that but it's also just it's just trying to show value but it's like you know this is something that would have made sense as like you know to be superimposed somehow on the screen but just the technology just didn't no i mean it's also interesting to watch this i watched the whole infomercial so none of you have to but it's in black and white and so he's showing all this allegedly beautiful and healthful food that he's making and it just all looks gray so you have no idea and so to be able to successfully pull this infomercial off is quite a feat. And the thing is, it was a wild success. So as I mentioned, this one actually aired live and it aired live for the rest of the year. He would just go in and do this over and over again. And that first night, the phone was ringing off the hook. This is the era of like an operator having to take your call and connect you. And in the middle of the night, the operator cut through and said, Mr. Bernard, this is your operator, but I'm going home. Like, I'm tired. The infomercial continued to air live for the rest of that year, and then it was recorded in 1950 and just aired pretty constantly. Uh, I'm sure that that's, too, like, a thing where, like, the cost of taping it was expensive then. Right. Because there wasn't that many... I mean, videotape didn't exist as you know it. Uh, then it was, like, a earlier sort of thing that leads to that. But so it would have had to have been filmed, and then... Um, which would have just added to the cost. It was cheaper... For him to go in and just do it every Wild time. Wild to think about that, but clearly that's how many sales it was doing. Yeah, that now it was got, like we're going to spend the money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It got to the point where he was like, "Well, okay, like you know, this wasn't a one-time thing. Oh, we'll do it again. Oh, wow, you know." And then finally, it's like, "Okay, like this is now worth spending the money because the return on investment is so high that like then I don't have to go in every time and do it." Yeah, totally, totally. So the Vitamix company continued in the infomercial game for years, but they eventually left because they felt that too many other scammy products had arrived on the scene from competitors and they didn't want to be lumped in with them. They were like, we, we got to get out of this. But demonstration is still a big part of their business model. And so you can watch YouTube videos. They do like pop-ups in stores because they think it's really important for people to see all the ways that they can use the Vitamix. It's interesting that that's then how they're, they still have such a great reputation. I know. And I think it's because they cut, they cut out of there. Um, that's the thing about the infomercials that followed through the 1950s. They were super scammy and full of snake oil. Here in the United States, the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission, it had to step in to limit the amount of advertising that could appear during an hour of television. Basically, with the target, the goal 
of eliminating infomercials, and it was successful. However, there was one kind of infomercial that found a loophole there, and that was infomercials that sold music compilations because they could keep running because they would include enough snippets of the song, and the songs didn't count as advertising content. And so they actually were able to meet, I want to say for a long time, it was 12 minutes of commercials per hour of programming. They could hit that by just playing songs. So is that then why you see all those KTEL compilations? Yes, yeah, exactly. okay. Well, yeah. And so then my sort of, so, so, you know, and you see all that through the seventies and like all of, I mean, and I, it also goes to all the sound alike stuff, but like, whatever, uh, the KTEL stuff though is like a whole other thing. And that makes me ask, though, and I know the. Does this exist in the UK? Not as much. Um, they crack down on this stuff a lot more. I mean, I will tell you, infomercials are an American invention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it makes sense. I just asked because of like when you start saying limiting the number of commercials, I immediately start thinking of like the BBC and how mm-hmm. things like that have, you know, allowed that. And it's a very different, you know, free market baby uh, <laughs> over here. You know. Uh, yeah, so uh, at the end of last year, I did a series of closed horse episodes with my friend Jess about toy crazes of the 80s and 90s. And we talked about something I know you also love to talk about, Dustin, which was how the deregulation of advertising to children resulted in toy companies making cartoons that literally functioned as 30-minute advertisements for toys. Like you could almost argue that they were kind of like infomercials, but there was like no info to be had. Well, the info was their exciting adventures. <laughs> um, by the way, what is your, just briefly, what was your favorite cartoon created to sell toys? Really hard. Because is it the one that I liked the most then or the one, you know, um, I mean, I was a pretty diehard Transformers kid. Um, you know, I, that, that was, that would probably be the one that at least at the time was by far. Um, but I got into like, I was so into all of them because i was you know a weird especially circa grade school like a weird kid living a mile up a gravel road you know like that was like not into outdoorsy activities so i was like actively watching all of this and also we at one point because terry was upset with the cable company yeah uh uh he we got cut off because i think that there was like cable theft or something <laughs> such an 80s story and so we got a satellite dish so because of that like the the, you know there was for all the big ones there were there were so many smaller ones that like you know like barely were shown especially if you lived in a in a place you didn't have every syndicated one you know like you just wasn't going to happen um so with the satellite you could watch everything and it got really wild to see all that so there's so many lesser ones that are really interesting and like weird but ultimately as a child within that that the transformers were by far my favorite but i think i think for the sheer toys mask really deserves matt the mask toys actually hold up and are really cool and weird and well designed you know it's interesting when that episode came out and i did i did a reel about and actually multiple reels about examples of these shows and their toys you know and, and demonstrating the relationship there um, a lot of people were like really surprised, but like, oh, it makes sense to me now in hindsight. But there was a subset of people who were enraged at me for revealing this and sent me really hostile messages about it. Who, does, who doesn't I, realize that at this point that like, 
I mean, that's just how this worked. I like, know. People were like, you just destroyed my childhood. And I, I had all these positive memories of Rainbow Bright or whatever. And it's like, you still can. Here's the reality, guys. Guess what? I have really fond memories of eating Happy Meals at the beach with my family or having those miniature boxes of like uh, Fruit Loops on camping trips or, you know, playing Barbies with my friend Kara or I could go on and on and on. And the point is, all this stuff was commercial product. This is what our childhoods were. It doesn't invalidate our childhoods, right? Realizing that you were marketed to basically, like, does it negate your experience with that? It just means that, like, you know, like, He-Man wasn't created for in this, like, puritanical void or something, you know? Like, I mean, well, that's the one that always comes to mind because that's the first one that really breaks that mold. And, I mean, it, it... that one in particular is just such a wild co- case of how like that one got built up and there was even they were even almost used it for um action figures for the Arnold Schwarzenegger Conan movie. Wow. Yeah, like that's and then they when they saw the cut of the movie and realized that it wasn't a children's movie uh that like they were like we can't do this. And so there's all this weird stuff, you know, and, but that's just what it is. Like, you know, like I mean, anything that is a product that you enjoy has to get made. It has to exist for a reason like or even like cabbage patch kids like you know the altruistic ness of the woman who originally creates them it, it has them as an art product not as a commercial product you know like and that's just that's the reality of anything and that doesn't mean that it's not cool or enjoyable i mean like you know like it's just the way it is <laughs> right i mean it is just the way it is and unfortunately like you know, art and creativity and capitalism have a really complicated relationship, right? If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. 
Com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Um, so, you know, we're, as, as we're saying here, all of us uh, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, we we were exposed to an awful lot of advertising and licensed product and it was all tied in together, right? And that's because 
The Reagan administration felt that the rules around advertising to children were stifling business growth. Even saying that out loud is pretty appalling. But I mean, this is also brought to you by the same administration that said, let's take home ec and industrial arts out of schools because those aren't job skills. You know, like life skills don't count. I mean, any problem that exists in America, you can basically trace back to the Reagan administration. And that includes infomercials and just general, like more advertising and advertising that was confusing even for adults because the Reagan administration felt that all rules around all advertising were preventing the economy from growing. So in 1984, the administration erased the Federal Communications Commission's limit of 12 commercial minutes per hour of programming. So that meant infomercials were back, right? Like, and in a big way, it was like they opened a floodgate. Like, people were just waiting for this moment. This time, they just had to have a disclaimer that was something like, all claims and representations made in this program-length advertisement are the sole responsibility of the sponsor. But, I mean, these, for the most part, these programs looked, we're going to talk about this more, they looked and felt like real television shows. So almost immediately, the airwaves filled with scammy products. In fact, The president's own son, Michael Reagan, hosted an infomercial for something called the Euro Trim Diet Patch. I think it's really important for all of you to know that trim was spelled T-R-Y-M. I could not find a clip of this anywhere. I'm so sad. Um, That manufacturer was sued by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, for false advertising. And that same company was also sued at the same time for selling bogus impotence pills too. I mean, it was like immediately, every sketchy person was like, get your infomercial going. Um, There's a guy named Jeffrey Knowles. I don't think he's related to Beyonce Knowles, as far as I'm aware. Um, He was counsel for the National Infomercial Marketing Association based in Washington. We talked about them earlier. He told the New York Times in 1992, it was like a frontier town when infomercials were allowed to return to the airwaves. It got so bad, almost like immediately, that congressional hearings threatened to shut down the entire infomercial industry for years. They were going to be tied up for years in in hearings in which no content would be allowed to be released. So the more legit companies that were operating within this area got together to form its own trade and lobbying group to kind of get rid of all the scumbags. It makes sense that, like, I mean, something as goofy as the diet trim patch. As soon, because as soon as you like, if if we've now had essentially a generation that has existed without this kind of advertising, and then you're allowed to slip something on that looks like real programming, you're going to be so susceptible to it. Yeah, because you're not going to have the like the bullshit filter to like understand that. And that is maybe why infomercials were so successful in the late '80s and '90s, like you said, because. This is a whole generation who hadn't seen this kind of stuff. And despite all of the drama and scams, infomercials still found their way onto the airwaves. Why? Because at this point, television stations needed money and they needed it pretty badly. You know, Reagan is like, we're going to get rid of all decency in order to sell as much shit as possible. And it is considered a time of great economic growth. It's kind of like an illusion, which... In hindsight, everybody can see now, right? What we really saw was income inequality expanding and really setting, like Dustin was saying, setting the stage for everything that we struggle with now and have for 
generations now at this point. By 1992, when Bill Clinton defeated Republican George Bush in the U.S. presidential election, 10 million Americans were unemployed, the country faced record deficits, and poverty and welfare roles were growing. Family incomes were losing ground to inflation, and jobs were being created at the slowest rate since the Great Depression. And this is despite the Reagan administration being like, we're pulling off all the safeguards that protect Americans from business. And it wasn't even just like commercials. We're talking like environmental regulation, right? Workers' rights regulation, like anything was pulled out so that people could sell more shit. But it it clearly wasn't working out for the like average American. Um, and the info I just shared, all those statistics, that came from a really early website uh, created by the Clinton-Gore administration. It looks amazing. I can't believe wow. it's still there. Um, the economy was just not great. And broadcasters were really feeling that pinch. But infomercials, despite their seedy, kind of unsavory reputation, were easy money. According to a 1992 New York Times article called The Stepford Channel, in the early 90s, stations charged companies anywhere from $500 for a half hour in a small market to $50,000 for a slot in New York or L.A., though many broadcasters are embarrassed to admit it. And from that same New York Times article, this is great. They ask a guy, his name's Martin Blair. He's a spokesman for uh, New York's CBS affiliate, WCBS. He said, what do you want me to say? Yeah, we run them. So what? He's just embarrassed. But he was substituting commercials for programming during a recession was a necessity, according to the general manager of the New York City NBC affiliate, Bill Bolster. He predicted that as soon as the economy improves, they'll be the first thing to go. That didn't really happen, right? Because they were addicted. They were like, this is easy money. Once you get easy money like that, you're not, it's not going away. Like you're like, oh no, I, what should I, we run a rerun of something at, you know, one in the morning or, you know, like, and and get paid, you know, like, because if anybody's up and watching TV at that point, they're up and watching TV. So the infomercials were here to stay. Like Dustin said, they did not go away when the economy got better. Uh, they didn't go away when the economy got worse. They just kept on going. They're still here. And we're going to talk about that more in the next episode. Even in this century, there are many products, uh, for example, uh, the Snuggie, that were launched and sold via infomercial. Um, And even here in the late 80s and 90s, this era that we're talking about, many infomercials sold tangible products like makeup and home goods, while others sold advice and social contact via 1-900 numbers. It's wild. We're going to talk more about that on the next episode, too. I think, actually, the 1-900 numbers were the thing that really really blew my mind. Like I knew about psychic hotlines, but there are other ones too that I'm still confused about. Uh, Most infomercials arrived in a form that was super comfortable and familiar to us. A quasi talk show, right? The live studio audience, celebrity guests, call-ins from happy customers. They were so comforting, you know? As a person who's always struggled with insomnia, I found that I could always easily and blissfully be lulled back to sleep just by turning on any of these programs. It didn't matter what it was. No one was ever sad on an infomercial because everyone was like hysterical with happiness. All problems were solved by miracle devices and psychic advisors. And if they weren't, it was no big deal because there was always a money back guarantee. 
infomercials built a world that was perfect, where no one was ever disappointed because everyone was delighted. Satisfaction was guaranteed. I really wanted to go be in an infomercial like audience. Like this is one of those things that like, you know, like in my uh, teenage years, I was like, this is such a thing you would see these audiences. I was like, man, that'd be like the weirdest thing to be, <laughs> you know, like in the, 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 the audience for sadly, the first time I got to be in the audience for anything was a dating show in Pittsburgh. Oh, uh, and, and yeah, like they, they would be on all night like that. It was just so wild. Cause you know, like whenever I was, late teen i would always fall asleep with like the history channel because it would run reruns pretty late but inevitably it would turn to that and the thing is okay all of these were probably only recorded once or twice and then re-aired time and time again and they would even have small print at the bottom said this is like a pre-taped program they always felt live i can't they did a really good job of creating this illusion that if you stopped what you were doing and actually watched it and gave your attention you were participating in something else that millions of other people were participating in at the same time and it would give you this illusion of connectedness and it was really weird for me even though i knew that none of these were live to watch some of them on youtube today where i 100 percent know that they're not happening live and to have this really disheartening realization that they always looked this way no matter what. They never changed because they were a recording. And even if I saw the Ronco electric food dehydrator infomercial multiple times, it was probably the same every time. I just dropped in at different points. So it seemed different, you know? Well, I mean, the, 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 the audience in that live thing is just, it's, a, it's, it's weird. It has such a vibe, even if, like when you know that it's not live you know it feels live uh mark crispin miller who is professor of media studies at john hopkins university in baltimore told the new york times in 1992 what people seem to want from the infomercial is an experience that is wholly and brainlessly affirmative it may be commercial television in its purest state because there was never bad news yeah, yeah. Right. Um, despite the strange appeal of infomercials, you can obviously see that Dustin and I both find them to be strangely appealing, strangely compelling. Large networks still felt that they weren't exactly, you know, premium content, like leave it for the lesser affiliates, the the slower markets, the rural markets, that kind of thing. They were fine for generating some extra revenue late, late at night, buried after everything else. But they weren't really something they were going to shout about or advertise on any daytime program, right? They might, they were almost kind of a dirty secret. Like they felt like dirty money. But in 1992, ABC, who had been struggling to fill the, I want to say 1230 slot, 1230 Eastern time slot, decided to test something in a big way. A new program called Nightcap, N-I-T-E-C-A-P, a late night 30 minute show starring Robin Leach of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and Radon Chong. And it featured all-star guests that would encourage viewers to call a 1-800 number to order products and or receive special offers and coupons for those products. It aired on 52 stations for six weeks. As far as I can tell, it did not go much further beyond that. Um, ABC was getting into the infomercial game because shopping from home could no longer be ignored. As dodgy as we might want to think infomercials were, they were generating a lot of money, as was the burgeoning home shopping area. 
According to a 1992 Chicago Tribune article about this show, Nightcap, Increasingly, customers are shunning retail stores in favor of shopping from home. The trend has spawned a $5 billion a year direct marketing industry in which Home Shopping Network and its cable rival, QVC Shopping Channel, claim a combined total of $2 billion. That means that there was $3 billion in other sales being driven by all the infomercials and commercials. That's like nothing to sneeze at. It's interesting to think that as far back as 1992, when e-commerce was really about 15 years off in the future, as in like being able to easily purchase something online, people were already bored with shopping IRL or just looking for a new way to shop. When people start talking about e-com killing shopping are they forget that people were already ordering from catalogs for decades and this just feels like the continuation of that and proof that like oh i'm busy if you put something in front of me that i want i'll just order it you know and they're fine with that and like that's not surprising that you know the difference though being that like is this a product that you actually need or is it something that you just perceive that value because you know can you put a price on your health? You know, like the early days of a lot of home shopping stuff were less cubic zirconia rings that no one needed and probably a little more practical, um, you know, because they were just trying to make catalogs on TV, you know, or like Sky Mall or like, you know, East Bay who just stopped where a catalog through this whole time period that people ordered you know, athletic stuff from, and it was a big, big thing for premium stuff, especially like, you know, like if you weren't near a giant retailer or something. So I, you know, it may, it it all adds up. Yeah. I mean, I have no doubt that, I mean, and I know this from my firsthand experience that of course e-commerce did change the way people shopped, but I think you're right that people were shopping from ads in the coupon circular that were like, order this thing. You know, there were catalogs, uh, there were, ads in magazines for buying things on like not online but via the mail and obviously we had television as well but people were always buying from a variety of different sources i think that was interesting about infomercials and probably home shopping as well is that you know for many people shopping is a social activity and if you don't have a lot of time or you're in a stage in your life where maybe you're a little bit more isolated for various reasons watching infomercials and shopping from them or shopping from QVC or what have you gives you that feeling of engaging in a social activity while you're buying something. And it even makes you feel like you've got all these other people sort of cheering you on as you make your purchase. You know, it feels, it's very parasocial in a pre-social media world. I mean, I'm sure that's why there's the live audience there to give you that, that feeling. You know, right. to, yeah, yeah, to, to, to to create yeah. a sense of community in this weird, weird abstract way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. You know, and furthermore, for many of us in the pre-internet world, television was a window to the world. And it was often a source of education in one way or another, even if the education wasn't completely true. I remember when my mother found out that I didn't own a television, and I'm not sure why this shocked her, as I'd never had one as a young adult. In fact, the only television I've ever owned until recently was a television that one of my friends left behind when she went to join the Peace Corps, and it still is in our house. (laughs) And when Dustin and I started dating, I never really used it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that TV over there, I guess we can watch it. Anyway, my mom was horrified that I did not have a television because she said, 
how will Dylan learn anything without a television? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't necessarily think of television in that way, but uh, viewers, for better or worse, viewed infomercials as educational content too, right? That The info there. Uh, Professor Todd Gitlin, who is director of the Mass Communications Program at University of California at Berkeley told the New York Times in 1992, shopping is pleasure for a lot of people. And with infomercials, they can fool themselves into thinking they're learning something at the same time. It did seem like, especially, you know, when we talk about like, say, the kitchen implement infomercials, they were teaching you how to cook things or be more economical, right? Uh, The makeup ones taught you how to apply makeup in a more convincing, effective way, which is what women's magazines had been trying to teach for decades or pretending to teach, I guess I should say. Um, All of the weird ones about like working out or vitamins were teaching you how to have like a healthier lifestyle. I mean, the Vitamix infomercial is like, hey, just FYI, you can make butter from your milk, you know? Um, So anyway, with all of this in mind, with this social aspect, this sort of parasocial aspect, this illusion of education, right? Naturally, someone is going to listen to the shopping suggestions of Robin Leach and his celebrity friends on Nightcap. Now, making this show was a bold move because it would be going up against David Letterman and Arsenio Hall. And I don't know how anyone thought that this one would come out on top. Um, The show was designed to be a toast to retailers to get customers back into stores. And the show's partner, the show partnered with brands like Burger King. Estee Lauder, Seagram's, and lots of other weird diet products, of course. Diet products and infomercials are like the the ketchup and mustard of television, I think. Um, stations would get a 5% cut of any sales made during the broadcast in their viewing area. And we kind of touched on this early in the episode, but this is not unlike a lot of content made today from Bustle to BuzzFeed to Refinery29 to influencer posts to YouTube videos, on and on and on. Anytime a reader or a follower clicks the link in an article called 30 Best Dresses on Amazon right now or our picks from the insert brand here or summer sale or even just click through an Instagram story and then make a purchase, the publisher or influencer, whoever originally published that link gets a cut of the sale. And these affiliate links are shaping fashion, pop culture, cooking, and beauty media right now. In fact, the more you can offer on an affiliate link, the more likely you are to get some PR for your brand. Nightcap, when I look back at it this way, was sort of the inception of it all, but via television. I'm sad to say... I couldn't find many clips of it. Um, Actually, I can only find one clip of it and the sound quality isn't great because it's someone making a video from their phone of their TV. But, (laughs) love it. But it seemed to feel like a big party where Robin Leach cruised around with a microphone and people talked about products. Um, The sound, like I said, the sound quality isn't amazing here, but I bookmarked one section just for you, Dustin. It's just a few seconds, but it's really important to me that you see this. Are you ready? All right, when we return, our dear friend Mr. Belvedere will go ballistic over the royal family happenings in England. And he won't be coming down the chimney wearing a red suit, but he does have a beard and a big bag of goodies for you. Comedian John Ferentino. Did you love that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so like I said, 
it wasn't around for very long. Nightcap only lasted 12 weeks, which was double the original plan. Um, but it was a block that was really difficult for ABC to fill for years. I think it still is. It is largely gone from the internet, perhaps because it did only live for 12 weeks in 1992. But I did find two, yes, two whole reviews on IMDb for it. And I thought that I would share them at the very least to amuse you, Dustin. So the first one, the, the, the title was Nightcap Will End Your Day by Putting You to Sleep. Um, it was written by Rambo726 in February 2006. Now, Dustin knows I love reading a review. We always joke that I'm going to start a podcast where I just read reviews and it'll be very like avant-garde. We're talking like five, 10 minute episodes where I just re- read reviews for a restaurant or something random. No, no editorializing, no right. pontificating, it's just, just yeah. here is the series of reviews for a specific place or thing. So anyway, if, you, if this is the kind of content you're interested in, let us know because we keep talking about doing this, but then we never do. Um, okay, so this is the first one written by Rambo726. And he said, disastrous. And that's just being kind. Nightcap offers up a mix of party time, interviews, infomercials, and the self-indulgence that host Robin Leach found through his Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous series, a show I actually enjoyed. Nightcap is an attempt to capture the freewheeling attitudes of Hugh Hefner's Playboy's Penthouse, which I agree. I thought it looked just like that, but without the feeling of pizzazz or the wow factor that came with it. Nightcap drags along in a sloppy, disconnected way with Leech and co-host Radon Chong stumbling through the little scripted material provided. Ad-libbing was apparently thought of as a good idea. So... As far as I can tell, this means Rambo 726 watched this show somewhere. Question one. Why is Rambo 726 reviewing this show in February of 2000? When this was on for 12 weeks in 1992. Agreed. Great question. That in and of itself is really interesting. And uh, if somebody can talk to Rambo 726 and let me know, I would really like that. So... I agree. Now, review number two, which was written by Lee Sophie Two in April 2021, I can at least understand that this guy was holding a grudge long enough to write (laughs) this review. Um, The title of this was, I worked on Nightcap and I thought I would kill myself. Robin was a prick to work with. Chong was pleasant, but never connected with him. Note that Radon Chong is actually a woman. Uh, It did make air in 12 markets for its two-week tryout. It was put to sleep after that run. This guy's a little off. Lee Sophie, too, is a little off on a few things here, but at least he's got an axe to grind. Yeah. Uh, I Like I said, I looked so hard to find this, although I do have a feeling it is pretty much unwatchable because the clip I watched before the section I showed you was him. It's like a crowd. Mm-hmm. And he's walking around with a microphone and talking to someone about their diet supplement. And then they're talking about like metabolism stuff, but there's people milling around in the background. And the sound is a bit odd too, where like there's too much murmuring in the background. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that their idea was like, okay, look, we can't compete with real programming here because this is when like, you know, Letterman and stuff are on. Yeah. And the guy who produced it, I mean, there was a lot, there were a lot of news pieces about Nightcap before it came out because people were like, this is crazy. Infomercials have gone too far. There was a lot of outrage about it. But the producer was basically like, hey, listen, this is the future. And to a certain extent, he was very right. I think that he didn't realize 
he thought it was going to be the future of this was going to be on television, but really the future of this was going to be on the internet, on social media. But he was like, this is the future. People connecting with people and figure, you know, getting advice for what to buy. That was totally true. And he was like really hyped on this. He said, listen, I think we could be selling cars this way. And to be fair, plenty of cars have probably been sold via Instagram at this point. Yeah. Um, so he was just ahead of his time, but Nightcap itself didn't really succeed. I think it's hard for me to imagine it succeeding even now in that format. But, you know, it makes perfect sense for social media where you don't feel quite so distanced from the people who are showing you stuff to buy. Well, even the format of having it feel like a party or something is more like social media in that, like, there's this, com- like, everything's happening around you and you're picking out the thing to look at, you know? Um, it seems really chaotic in the context of television, but it's not, it, it's somewhat analogous. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Well, that's where we're going to end this week's episode, but we're going to be back next week with more infomercial info. We're going to be talking about the massive business behind it all. And yes, there were a few big companies that were steering the majority of this. We're going to talk about the most legendary hosts and products, and we're going to talk about where infomercials went in this century. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.